Welcome to episode 140 of the Sentientism podcast, a podcast about what's real and what matters. The Sentientism worldview answers those two deep questions by committing to evidence, reason, and compassion for all sentient beings. In this episode, I speak with Bell Jacobs. Between 1999 and 2014, Bell was style editor for Metro. The fall of Rana Plaza in 2013 forced a reassessment, and today she's a writer, speaker, and activist with a focus on animal rights, the climate emergency, and the toxic fashion system. Bell has taken part in and moderated numerous panels for brands and organisations and has been interviewed about her work in activism, alternative systems in fashion and culture change. I'd love to know what you think of this episode and the 139 others. Don't forget to work through our back catalogue if you just found us. Every person who reviews and rates or shares our podcast with a friend helps us nudge more people towards more compassionate, rational thinking. You can find out more about sentientism at sentientism.info, or you can sign up for email updates, or just search for the word sentientism on your favourite social media platform. You'll be made very welcome in all of our global online communities. They're open to anyone interested in these sorts of ideas, not just sentientists. Thanks for listening. Good afternoon, Belle. How are you? I'm good. Thanks, Jeremy. Good, good. And it's a, a rare treat to be in the same time zone as one of my guests, even though we're still on Zoom. But uh, we're not spanning spanning the time zones for once, both both in London, I think. So, um, well, thank you so much for taking the time to join this series of sentientist conversations. It's great to move from uh, Twitter DMs and uh, online chats to actually be able to see each other, even if it is digitally. Um, and as you know, this is a series of conversations about what I think of as the two deepest and most important philosophical questions and what's real, how should we understand reality, epistemology, if you like, and uh, then the questions of ethics, what and who matters and, and why. And I've got an obvious agenda here because I'm trying to develop and popularise this really pluralistic, simple, but quite radical worldview called sentientism, which suggests that when we think about what's real, we should take a naturalistic approach using evidence and reason to ground our credences and our beliefs. Um, when it comes to the question of moral scope, it's, it simply says that every sentient being should matter, should get our compassion. So every being that has the capacity to suffer or flourish. Um, but beyond that, there's clearly you know a whole world of other topics we might still argue about. But it suggests you know let's at least agree those as a as a baseline, if you like. But I'm talking in these conversations to people who agree and disagree with those aspects of that philosophy too. So it'd be fascinating to understand your own journey and where you've got to now on those big questions and what they mean for how we might make a better future but before we get on to those how would you best introduce yourself and your work for people who don't know you already uh yeah so uh, well i think i think to keep it very simple i started as a journalist essentially um and uh and most people know me from my background as a fashion editor um but of course it wasn't just about fashion. I mean, I've been interested in a whole load of issues and they've actually sort of, when I was a fashion editor, they sort of receded slightly. Um, and when I stopped being a fashion editor, they've come to the fore. And those issues are very broadly social and animal justice. You know, it's, it's something as a fashion editor, I kind of slightly put to almost one side for a while and focused on what fashion was. The um, job sort of almost has to take centre stage yeah. and everything else is squeezed around the edges. Yeah. Very, very much. So. And the world sucks you in as well. The, the world of fashion sucks you in, makes you think that it's the only thing that really counts at the time. And yeah. 
now I've sort of progressed. I, I left fashion, and I often talk about this. The the crunch moment was um, I was a fashion editor for thirteen years, and then a garment factory in Bangladesh fell down, and and I changed career um, in light of that. Um, and I'm now I would say I, I speak about climate justice. I speak about animal rights. I run uh, two websites. Uh, one of them is focused on reframing human and animal relationships. Um, I am a co-founder of a climate center in my local borough, uh, which is called the Islington Climate Center. Uh, and, and that tries to tackle the climate from, from all aspects, from, from you know, what it's like to be an ordinary person living in Islington. So looking at sort of plant-based futures, I'll call them for want of a better word, but also animal rights and why animal rights actually counts in the whole climate issue, why, why it does matter. You know why animals do matter. Um, yes, yeah, so I've got my fingers in many, many pies, Jamie, as as we all do. It's, it's a 360 degree vision of the world that we need to be looking at. Yeah, and you still do some journalism as well. You still write as part of that activism. You're still writing and in many outlets too, which I've seen. Yes. So yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, that's brilliant. Thank you. It's a fascinating mm. journey from a sort of corporate intense life in the fashion world into something more amorphous and more clearly activist with an agenda so yes yeah it's, so it's um, yeah and i think i'd imagine that would flow through some of the philosophical conversation we're about to have too yeah. so let's start with the first of those very big questions what matters so for many of my guests this is a story about whether they grew up originally in quite a naturalistic maybe scientifically minded household and society or one that was maybe more spiritual mystical religious in some way mm. and how that side of their thinking has changed over their life if it has uh, mm. when, when it comes to thinking about what's real what is the nature of the universe how should we choose what to believe yeah so yeah i'll give you a little bit of background uh, on on where i grew up i grew up in hong kong it was a really really urban landscape i mean it was you know nature was um oh it was that classic thing when i was growing up um, Hong Kong in the 70s was very rich and vibrant. And as I lived there, it just started to get huge swathes of it paid, paved over. But I do remember, even at that time, really loving animals. I mean, really loved animals. I, was, I got my first sort of companion animal, or I, was, I forced my parents to get my first companion animal when I was three. And the reason they did it is because every dog that I was seeing in the streets, and at the time there were a lot of stray dogs in Hong Kong, I would chase after that animal. And so they finally thought, well, look, this is getting out of hand. Perhaps if we get her a cat, it will calm her down. Um, and it, it, it didn't. And, and I don't remember, obviously, what I thought when I saw animals when I was three years old. But I have a continual sense that they were these beautiful things. Every animal that I saw was just beautiful in a way that a, me as a three-year-old child could apparently not help following. Yeah. Um, the thing about Hong Kong and growing up in that time is that animals were not, the strays that I saw on the street were miserable. Um, and they were in really bad state. And then also in Hong Kong, being part of China, there were a lot of, uh, probably you would describe them as, as wet markets. You know, you'd go down to the market and there would be chickens rammed into cages and there would be uh, fish weirdly sort of taken apart and laid out on slabs. And, um, and it, was, it was all very, when you're a child and you see these things, you don't really, 
react. It's almost like you're just looking. Uh, but I remember a sense that this wasn't really good or nice or, or, but no one talked about it. No one ever, ever spoke about anything like this. And then the other thing about growing up in Hong Kong was it was the food. It was um, the food. It, you know, food was a very is a very big deal in that culture. Was was in, in in the culture when I was growing up, and 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 so and the more exotic and bizarre it was, the more it was valued. So it would be things like um, a traditional dish at a feast, for example, was the, the so-called suckling pig, where you know a very young pig would be roasted and barbecued, and then presented as the piglet. You know, I, there was no carving up of this animal the animal yeah, was in no the middle disguising of the, the no, yeah <clears throat> this is a suckling pig and, and i remember one particularly bizarre banquet where they actually put flashing lights in the eyes very 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 odd and then things like um turtle soup where the whole turtle was in the in the soup so you would see the turtle floating around and then someone would serve the and it was I mean, in some ways, you could argue that this is at least they were honest about where their food was coming from. There was no, there was no pretense at a compassion. It's like the pig is there to eat. Here it is. Now let's tuck in. Mm. Um, and, and I tucked in because everyone else tucked in. You don't question it. They were on, it, it was bizarre. But it was, but I held this kind of love of animals whilst eating them for a very, very, very long time, Jamie, as, as many of us do. And I, and I sometimes think back and think, how the hell does this happen at this, this scale? Yeah. If we, and I think it's, yeah. and it's, and it's interesting because it's a common trope for uh, people to say, you know, if slaughterhouses had glass walls, everyone yes. would be vegan. And and I think what you just said completely gives the lie to that, right? Because yeah. when you have uh, many places around the world, uh, including in the US and even certain parts of the UK, right, that um, you have slaughter happening on the street or you have dishes like that where there's absolutely no attempt made to disguise the fact it was a sentient being in fact that's yeah. part of the exoticism and the celebration yes. of it um and again that's not just something that you will see yes. in hong kong you know no. we have hog roasts in the uk and the us and you know it's it's right there in front of you right yes. um so i do think it gives the lie to that view that if only people understood everything would change i think yes. those social norms still hold people very powerfully don't they but yes yeah it, it feels like that and actually i never really thought about it like that jamie before I knew I was going to have to think a lot during this this interview, and you're absolutely right. Yeah, it it was so apparent where the meat is coming from. Mm. Yeah, and so um, and and that's you're already demonstrating one of the challenges of this interview structure, really, because yeah. I sometimes try and force people onto that sort of what's real question, but we just drive into the ethics already. That's, yes, but, but I'm interested in the in this religion, not religious. Yeah. question in terms of how you grew up and what, how you think now, partly because I think that leads into how we think about the questions of ethics as well. Sure. So uh, were, you, were you and your family religious growing up or what would you describe as the world beyond that sort of spectrum? Yes, I will try and stick to the structure. That's all right, you don't have to. <laughs> um, well, I, I think my it... most inter interesting question, conversations where people have gone completely <laughs> off piece. So. Yeah, I will. I mean, I grew up in a, I would say, a broadly uh, agnostic uh, yeah. household. My father was Jewish, but not very um, uh, active. And my mother, who was very much a 
a trauma of war sort of pick and mix her religion according to what she sort of how she felt so there was a sort of background of some traditional religions in that we had some Chinese gods in the corner of the room for example um, but she also had a lot of Buddhas um, and then towards the end of her life she turned very much to Christianity um, and my own sort of uh, feeling about that is that and, and I grew up in a school where, where we said the Lord's Prayer every morning mm. um, and I occasionally, very occasionally, Jamie, would ask for God for things, you know, so yeah. if, I, if I did this, you know, probably a bit close to a prayer. I think as I got older, I couldn't, I just couldn't correlate why there were so many sort of sad things happening and, and God didn't seem to be very active in sorting them. Mm. Um, so, so religion really, uh, is a miasmic sort of presence in my life. Mm. Uh, morality is a very strong presence in my life, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, the idea of good and bad, right and wrong. So it feels like your, how can I put this? It, your family sort of explored various different religious ways mm. of thought. There's still some form of presence in your mind and the way you think, although maybe not sort of locked down, you don't subscribe to one or the other, but there's still something there about, you know, maybe a deity or the supernatural or something beyond that still is a presence in your mind, but it doesn't centrally drive the way you think about ethics or am I putting words in your, well, in your mouth about well, where, you, a, where you've got to now? So where I am now is I think in a place of, um, for want of a better word, spirituality. Yeah. In that, uh, and that was brought to me almost directly by my uh, realization of what animals were enduring. And that's a, this is an interesting one for me. Um, I've jumped forward a bit in time, but I know when the year when I started to realize that things were not as they were being sold to me for animals. And it was really recent, Jamie, for me, it was 2016. And, and it was, and I can go into that in more depth, but I mm. will just talk about the spirituality. It's when you understand the extent of the suffering and the extent of the abuse and the extent of the cruelty that's leading to this, you cannot, or I could not rationalize it. And it was that point that I thought I need more support for this than I am seeing anywhere in the tangible, logical world. Yeah, I need to connect to my grief through connecting to the natural world. This is a shorthand. I remember when I first found out about some really truly horrific instances of abuse, I would try and sit and try and just, and people are going to think I sound flaky. I'm so sorry, Jamie, but I would try and think, I love these animals so much and they're going through such terrible things. I'm going to just try and drive my love to them through thought and visualizations and meditation. Yeah, just trying to extend that somehow, yeah, yeah. almost through somehow. desperation to. Yeah. 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 And and that was the first time I think. I thought I can't, I can't, there's not, there's not a petition I can sign that's going to help them. There is not a person I can speak to that's going to help them. I'm just going to have to rely on meta 
practical methods. Yeah. And and even yeah. if it doesn't reach them, even that the possibility of in any way moving the world it, it was just yeah i can't even i haven't it's like i haven't it, it, yeah that's when i first started to also meditate jamie and that's when i first started to really look at nature carefully mm. and it's so when i say i feel spiritual that's it's, it's just really trying to connect connect with the earth connect with nature and this is me speaking as an urban person who honestly yeah. if you put me in a forest for two days i'd, I'd probably just end up crying <laughs> in a puddle yeah <laughs> But 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 for me, it seems so sort of linked in with how we should be seeing nature now because we're we're losing it to the climate. So yeah. so uh, so so spirituality is key. Do I ever still speak to God? Not so much. My my God is 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 the natural world because yeah. it it's everything, isn't it? It's really everything. And I, and I'm I love this connection to it. It means. It means that sometimes I go into a park and I'm standing beside a tree and the tree is, is a wonderful, wonderful, precious thing. And then also for animals, for animals, for me, they're the sentient parts of nature. So when, I, when people say to me, I love nature, but they're still contributing to systems that, that harm animals, I kind of go, how much do you love nature? Nature and animals, they're one and the same for me. And, and, and in fact, I often say that animals are the sentient representations of nature. You know, you Mm. They're right there for us to to interact with and be with and love and and take care of or not to just let be and and so yeah it's yeah I wish I'd been I wish I'd understood a world a bit more like this when I was was growing up really and and yeah. just the deep joy that that gives me and and the hands in the soil metaphor you know you know I do I do like to get my hands in the soil now if if I can you know it's not very often at all and. Yeah. and yeah, it's, it's really, I wish, I wish, I wish I'd known. Thank you. And it's, and I find it fascinating how the, the sort of supernatural or natural or spiritual or religious worldviews intersect with our thinking about ethics and particularly with the ethics of non-human mm. animals, because there are some uh, religious ways of thinking that clearly uh, put a hierarchy in place, right? Ultimately, it's all about God, really. Um, humans come second because we're in the image of God. Um, you know, and everything else is there for our ends, mm. right? So that's that's one way of supernatural thinking that can separate us from the natural world or put us in a hierarchy above it. Um, then there are other religious modes of thought, even in established religions, that that can extend a more generous compassion, you know, the idea of a himpser and a, a richer connection of nature. And that certainly seems to flow through people who, who are sort of not religious, but are spiritual in the sense you describe, because it is a, it's through that way of thinking that people feel a rich connection with nature and with other sentient beings too. Um, so I find it interesting how, you know, I don't think a, a supernatural way of thinking is necessarily bad for non-human animal ethics. It can mm -hmm. be good or can be yeah. bad, good, bad. In the same way as even a naturalistic approach, I think, leads us towards a sentiocentric compassion. But some people will warp it to try and justify why our superior human scientific capabilities mean that you know we're the only ones that matter. So it, it, I find those intersections fascinating. And I think there's still quite a lot of commonality because I've followed a much more sort of bog-standard path of growing up religious and now just a dull atheist naturalist person right? so, so so i don't i don't think any of that metaphysical stuff exists 
Um, I don't think there's any magical connection between us and nature. And I don't think that, you know, I can act in a way that is effective metaphysically either. But having said that, um, even in a completely naturalistic sense, I think that I can still feel and experience much of what you feel because I feel my connection to nature through you know, my senses and through physics and through ultimately, you know, we're all quantum wave functions wobbling away, whatever it is. Right. So there's that sense of connection. And, um, and even though I, you know, I don't necessarily, I don't think prayer works, but I can see the value of a positive intention and a positive expression in the way it might influence others and influence the way I choose to act in the world as well. So even though I think, Mm. you know, no, I wouldn't think of spirituality in any supernatural sense, there still can be quite a lot of overlap between a naturalistic way of thinking and a spiritual way of thinking when it comes to our ethics and the way we live in the world but that yeah that's yeah. fascinating thank you yeah, yeah. so let's let's come on to this if it's okay onto this yeah. second big question of what matters mm. um and who matters which we've already started to talk about because many people who grow up with a fairly strict religious upbringing the ethics come as part of the package because you know you believe in god and heaven and hell or whatever it is but you also have this list of rules that tell you what good and bad are and sometimes they're more or less specific often they come back to really it's about obedience and submission rather than you know what i might think of as right and wrong but when you move away from that world you if you never had it it's quite an interesting exploration of like what do good and bad and right and wrong even mean so how would you answer that question? What is is there some sort of root or grounding to your ethics about right and wrong and good and bad? What what do those things mean to you? Uh, yeah, what is? I mean, I think. Okay, well, my God, Jamie, your questions are fantastic. Um, one thing I would say about religion, uh, the way I see them now, is religions are man-made constructions. Oh yeah, and they have been constructed in times long gone on planets and in environments that no longer exist by powerful men by off powerful men and i just can't and i know they give a lot of comfort to to many people but i i don't think you just cannot not question them yeah and 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 in the planet that we are today having seen what has been done to the planet through structures and systems and not stand back and go, wait, wait, what's, what's important? <laughs> what's really important? And, and why, should, why are we following rules that have been created in, in worlds that aren't there anymore, in communities and societies that have long gone? Yeah. And what are, what are the ones? And, that and communities and, science and societies and people who understood yeah. a vanishingly a small proportion of what we know now yeah. as well yeah yeah, yeah. Um, and so so i'm quite i'm really I'm not an, i'm not antipathetic but really wary of structured religion i find i find um yeah so tricky so in in terms of what what matters now going on to who matters now um For me, and the uh, for some reason, for me, for the word, the word that comes back is is suffering. Yeah. For me, what is good is the thing that renders least harm, least suffering. What is bad is the thing that renders most harm and most suffering. Um, I don't even need to elaborate on that, Jamie. I think no. that really is it. 
it's crystal clear. Yeah. And I, this is a fascinating question because I sometimes find people almost almost embarrassed that their answer is that simple. But yeah. I think, but th- that yeah. that's the core of it, right? Surely, yeah. surely that's the core of it. And and obviously, philosophers will go off and write thousands of different papers and do podcasts and have discussions and fight for thousands of years over the intricacies of ethics and morality. But for me, the core of it of morality is is the choice to care about the other and and to value their experiences in their life as they do. I mean, we can at least aspire to that. And what that leads us to is, as you said, right, you know, I don't like suffering. I'm pretty sure you don't like suffering. And morality is my choice to care about that. So, you know, isn't that a decent starting point? And, and, in, a, yes, yes. and well, in a way, that's, yeah. that's partly what's drawn me back to this focus on sentience, because yeah. sentience in a simple sense is the capacity to experience suffering. Yeah. So if you can experience suffering, you warrant compassion. And if you can't, you don't really need the compassion because you can't suffer. It's yeah. it's almost almost tautological. Yeah. But, but, then, even, yeah, but, even, but even as we talk, most people will think we're talking just about humans. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's the that's why this, you know, who matters question, I think is just yeah. as important because you know, there are many more brilliant philosophers than me who've done dazzlingly intricate and clever and intelligent work about virtue ethics or feminist care ethics or utilitarianism or um, deontology or whatever it is, or relational ethics. Um, But when you look through their work, nearly all of it is, if not explicitly only about humans, it's implicitly only about humans. Non-human animals aren't even thought of as valid moral patients by the vast majority of even professional philosophers, and certainly not by humans. So, and and so that's one frustration I find is that you know you can think about moral philosophy as much as you like, but if you've arbitrarily excluded vast swathes of suffering beings from even being considered, you've made a catastrophic, sickening, terrible ethical error that most people on the planet just ignore. So. I should stop ranting, but I'm I'm interested in how you went through that journey. So you've hinted at it already. You talked about at three years old, you already had that intuitive connection with non-humans. And that sounded like it was partly aesthetic, right? You just found them beautiful, but I sense there was probably some identification there as well. But then it was quite a long journey until 2016 before you locked in. So how did you go through that journey of starting to expand your sense of who matters? I think I think before I sort of had my uh, when I sort of realised what was what was happening for, for, for those all those decades. I think like many many people, Jamie, I must have thought um, the animals we eat are being well treated up until right till the moment of death, uh, being well treated right up to the moment of death. I must have thought that there were measures in place to take care of wild animals, that hunting was an um, maybe an aberration of some sort, that uh, animal testing couldn't be that bad. Uh, there must be all sorts of ways of making sure that the animal wasn't suffering too badly during the test. I, th- I think I had a ridiculously um, uh, innocent idea of what authority does. I, I think I think people were taking care of stuff and they were being right and fair and it was it was great. Yeah. Um, Surely I think, they must be doing the decent thing, right? Well, yeah, exactly. I, I'm a good person. We're good people. Yeah. The things we yeah. do must be good. Yeah, everything. Or at fine. least okay. Oh, at least okay. And so, so I would find myself, and I, I still think about 
you know, I would volunteer in animal shelters and then go home and have, you know, a meat dinner. Or I remember once being on a uh, an odd press trip to a Scottish island where we were, me and a group of journalists were wandering around and we saw a, 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 a sheep caught in some wire and we managed to let the sheep go and we went back to our cottage and we had lamb for dinner. And no one... Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, this is the mad, mad world. Yeah. Yeah. So we rescue one, then we eat the other. And it, it's just like... Um, my my awakening, or whatever you want to call it, my my moment when I realised that um, things were not right was my encounter with the Yulin Dog Meat Festival, um, and that came about. Uh, you can't really see well on in <laughs> there is a little dog in the middle of that bed, and it's all her fault. <laughs> um, What's her we, name? Uh, uh, Mouse, Mouse the dog. You can't really see. Great that. name, great name. Um, she got me uh, because she is. I, I've had many companion animals, but she made me realise that she made me remember how really amazing. Yeah, you know, she's she's a very amazing character. Um, and because of her, I started to look into dog charity, dog work, dog right, and that, and then I came across Julian, and that was a huge. Um, I can't really overstate how dreadful that was to see what was happening, and I don't. I, I don't know if your your listeners know much about you, Lynn, but there is a culture of torturing the animal to death in order to get adrenaline to run through the system so that you uh, then benefit more. I, I don't even know what properties the people who eat the dogs think that they're getting all sorts of bizarre remedies, they think, from the flesh of a frightened animal. And it's, and and it's, 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 it's such a... Obviously, it has so much in common with the animal and agriculture that most people are yeah. aware of but at yeah. the same time that is a that's something distinct right because most animal agriculture the suffering is a, is a, is a byproduct and of yeah. course there are you know people who are genuinely sadist within standard animal agriculture yeah. that do terrible things but the system itself doesn't benefit from the harm whereas in that instance there's it's a deliberately sadist thing but you know that's part of the point that's yeah it's yeah almost even more shocking right than the yeah byproduct of the byproduct yeah. suffering. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I've actually I spoke very, very briefly to a trauma specialist who 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 uh, who's actually a friend of a friend rather than professionally consulting them. And he's he I was talking to him and he about Yulin and he said it's it sounds like it's not just the suffering, it's the violence. And I think I think for me Yulin was was the moment when um I started questioning the nature of humanity. I started to question what humanity was capable of. I, the, that, that, what, the deliberately seeking out of such suffering made me lose a lot of faith in people. Not yeah. all of it I have got back, to be honest. Um, and I think that is the moment, and that inevitably from you, Lynn, you start to ask other questions and, and, and social media metrics works its magic. And before long, you're, you're full into... Um, what's happening on factory farms and then into animal experimentation. And, and, and as sort of, and I started to sort of, I, I, again, in my innocence, I thought if we can just stop Yulin, everything bad will stop. And I remember campaigning very, very hard to try and get Yulin to, to, to stop. And then realizing that there's a lot of issues entrenched there, but that it was the tip of the iceberg. And I think mm. that's when I started to go, right, I could sort out Yulin. <laughs> In, in some kind of mad ideal world, 
but all this other suffering would still continue, not least of it in factory farms in the UK. And it doesn't stop. And then that made me think, what is the culture? What is the culture that's leading to this kind of degradation? Mm. What is the, what, this is, I, I fixed Yulin, they'll still be shooting elephants. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. I, I need to stop it. Not just me, but that was my mindset at the time. It, it all needs to stop. And what stops it? What stops it is how we see animals inside today, in, 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 on the planet today. We have to reframe absolutely rewrite our relationship with with creatures who are and i use the word beautiful you said aesthetic it isn't just aesthetic there's something else there's there's something else that's beautiful about them yeah it's not just aesthetic we have to reframe our relationship with and and for me it's taken me down into all sorts of routes about human morality about where we justify, where we allow ourselves to um, harm creatures, uh, this is simply because they can't speak out and they can't fight back. And what, and you know, the, the, the animals that we eat are the most helpless. They don't know, they don't even know, they have no idea how to fight back. They have no chance in the system. And so, and they try to fight back, and they, they yeah. and they use their own language to make it very clear oh, their their resistance. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and and you know, and any animal rights activist holds in their head all the time, seeing these scenes. You know, these are these. You know, where I was absorbed from mainly social media. I will never forget what I've seen. I will never forget what I've seen. Because it has forced a reassessment of really almost everything. Yeah. And is that deep? It is. It's. It is. Yeah, it's in my DNA now, and and I'm genuinely glad about that. I don't want to go back to that ignorance ever again. Yeah. Um, but it's. Yeah, it's a it's a hard position to be in. So it's just it's the suffering, it's the violence, and then the third part of what makes it really hard for most animal rights activists is the denial. Where good friends or family go, don't tell me, don't show me, and then mm. don't and you, what? <laughs> now, can we can we come on to that in a minute? Sure. Because I think that's that's the core of this final question: about how do we make a better future? Yeah. Um, but if I can just drag you back to Yulin being the turning point, because you mentioned yes. that inevitably you went from seeing the horror of Yulin yes. into a broader concern about all other non-human animals and yes. you know, sentient beings in general. Um, I'm not sure it is inevitable for many people. Yes. Um, and and I'm sure you've seen some of this too, but there are many people for whom Yulin becomes a single issue. Yeah. They see the horror of it. They share our outrage. Yeah. They share our empathy for the victims, but only because they're dogs. Yeah. Um, and there's a there's a fascinating parody account on Twitter. I don't know if you've seen it of Elwood's dog yes. meat. 
which um i think is absolutely inspired yeah. you know the the uh, it, it's it's genius the way it's crafted because it zeroes in on exactly this problem where we pick out one species and decide to treat them differently um and many people follow that path so they will they will zero in on yulin it's all about the dogs or the companion animals um and that concern never spreads more broadly and and what that's often packaged with, and you'll find this often with people who sort of pick zero in on one single issue, is it's not just about picking out a special favorite species. There's also, you know, either a hint at some cultural aggression or some even, you know, racist overtones in their campaigning. So while, you know, a, a red flag for me is someone who's totally focused on trying to end Yulin, I agree, I'm with you on that 100%, but then hasn't gone to recognize the problems of animal agriculture globally around the world and indeed in their own culture so that to me that's a that's a that's a challenge because for many people that isn't an inevitable extension a logical extension of compassion at all yeah it's it's that's yeah for me i just as you speak over the word that comes into my mind is is hierarchy that it seems like you know humans just need to place life on some kind of hierarchy of value and through some kind of accident of physicality you know dogs or or some kind of accident dogs are higher up scale than pigs and yet pigs we have so much evidence um that they are compassionate intelligent you know just incredible incredible creatures um and yet maybe because their bodies hold more flesh than dogs it's just i mean it's it's just really Sad. And, and it's quite curious, it makes me think why, why I was one of those who went, well, if it's happening to dogs, it shouldn't be happening to pigs. Whereas, like you say, many people don't make that shift because I really haven't spent a lot of time with pigs, you know. Yeah. And, and yet it, it, it happened, Jeremy. Yeah, yeah. It, yeah. it was Yulin was the opening that, that yeah, to everything. Yeah. yeah. And I think it is, a, it is whether, whether I guess our ethics are driven by a, a more rational way of thinking, whether we want to be consistent, whether we want to be somewhat logical in the way we think about our ethics, yeah. or whether it is just about the social norm thing that says, you know, if it's normal in my culture, then it's okay. Yeah. And yeah. otherwise it's not. Um, yeah. And it's clear that you're much more in that sort of form account where yeah. you're working out, working out coherently. And yeah. I, and I agree, right. It's, it, there's something about just spending quality time with a non-human animal or with other humans, right, that you're unfamiliar with that can just give you that set. And I sometimes like to joke that we, you know, people will often ask about sentience. Well, okay, I get that all suffering matters, but how do we assess the sentience of others? And you can give a scientific answer. You can talk about, you know, common evolutionary history and adaptive drives that may have led us to develop sentience for obvious reasons, you know, move towards good stuff and away from bad. You can look at information processing and biological analogies you know we have a frontal cortex and a whatever else kick going on in our mind do other non-human animals have similar things and you can infer you can look at behavior and communications and infer from that as well or you can just spend high quality time with you know mouse behind you and you can do the same with a pig on a pig on a sanctuary so that's a much more direct visceral way of going yeah i'm I'm never 100 percent sure of anything but i'm highly confident that being experiences things it doesn't like suffering it you know wants to spend time with its family it doesn't want to die right these seem quite obvious fundamental things that are yes obscured from us by industries and by social norms but oh my god i mean the frustration that i feel about this whole debate around sentience it's like oh someone 
someone did a, a study recently going, oh, pigs, they can mediate. So if two pigs get into an argument, a third pig comes and mediates. And isn't this special and wonderful? And you think, but, and, and oh, I just, oh God, it's like, of course they're sentient. It's just use your eyes, you know. Yeah, you yeah. do not need to fund a study to just look at an animal and go, when I hit it, it flinches, or I'm so sorry, when I hit yeah. him, he yeah. flinches. I'm yeah. really still struggling with my pronouns, and it yeah. is fundamental, Jamie, don't get me wrong. Yeah, me too, um, me too. Yeah, um, and I think, and you're right, I think it's a, it's a deliberate distraction, and, and it's, another, it's another blinding of us that we are still arguing these things. It's, yeah, I just, yeah, it, it infuriates and enrages me. Is there someone in a TED Talk once said, uh, he was saying, how do I know my, my dog is sentient? Because when she wants her tummy rubbed, she comes to me and not the sofa. You know, it's just, it's so obvious. So yeah, it, yeah it's a very, very frustrating. It's, it's, and it, it, for me, it's part of the total blindness. I think, is it carnism by Melanie Joy? This, that, yeah. that worldview that, that prevents you from seeing the world as it is and, and prevents you from seeing animals as they are. Yeah, normal, natural, necessary, nice, and you know that whole structure of justifications we've built mm. up. Yeah. Well, let's. So, so I think when it comes to this "who matters" question, I think we we substantially agree because I suspect you might go a little bit further than me because of your concern for your your sort of spiritual connection with nature writ large takes you into more of a sort of ecocentric sense of caring about you know the earth as Gaia maybe and ecosystems and how it all connects. So that there's a concern there for not just the sentient beings, but for all of nature. Yeah. And um, and I think we probably agree on that, but for slightly different reasons. So I'm quite strict with my sentientism in that ultimately I think all value comes back to the experiences of sentient beings. So the reason I care about nature and rocks and rivers and plants and trees and ecosystems is because they're so critical to all the sentient beings. So that's more of a, an instrumental concern Jamie, I'm rather than... I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm going to surprise you. I'm going to say, yeah, absolutely. For me, yeah. the starting point was animals, is animals. Um, but I think because of my work within um, climate, it's like, and my an advocacy work, I find myself taken on journeys where I think, okay, for the majority of people, it doesn't seem to be enough. Animals don't seem to be enough. Mm. So, okay, so how can I go in at this from different angles? So over the past sort of four to five years, I have been trying to find different angles in to people in different ways. Mm. It's part of the activism. So don't get me wrong. For me, animals are my starting point. Yeah? And I love the way you said that the animals are the sentient voice of nature, if you like. So, so yeah. there is a clear yeah. distinction between you know, the value of a blade of grass and a pig, because one is sentient, the other yeah. isn't. Yeah. Sorry, But, but it's, really, it's really, really interesting that you say that, because I think almost everything I do is geared towards trying to stop, um, try, trying to help reduce the suffering of, yeah. uh, uh, of, of the sentient being, of the animal, but also of, of, of people. But sometimes, you know, again, going back to what distresses me about uh, the community, some of the communities I'm part of who don't prioritize animals at all, is that they need to hear why it's wrong to eat animals because it's bad for health. They need to hear why it's wrong to exploit animals because of the environmental perspective. And I, I will work with those. I will. I will. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I know them, you know, I'm getting to know them better. But for me, the key thing is 
to stop the suffering first and then the second thing is to accord the animals the respect they deserve yeah that's the core and, of it yeah and so so it's really interesting when you say there's a difference there isn't a difference jamie it's but we have different approaches now into yeah. it and and i've had to really because so many of the people i deal with on a daily basis do not do not seem to care about the animals or well, they care as long as it's convenient and then once it's inconvenient they don't care anymore yeah and so i'm always trying to negotiate that path. yeah of course um yeah and we'll come back to that when we talk about how to make a better future because those are central concerns okay. sure. um and i think the, the only thing i want to close out this who who matters section with is that as i've explored these topics it's interesting because some people will challenge sentientism and sentiocentrism more generally because they'll say, look, no, humans are the only ones that matter. So, you know, that's an anthropocentric stance. They say, look, humans are matter or humans um, at least matter so much more than anything else that that should override everything. So they'll reject a sentientist or a sentiocentric stance because they're anthropocentric. But interestingly, the first challenges to the term and to the concept were from people on the other side who said, look, hold on, you're not going far enough, right? Why, why are you privileging these sentient beings? Yeah. Why aren't you caring about you know, insentient plants, you know, and therefore biocentrism. Mm -hmm. Shouldn't we care about all living things? Yeah. Or the next stage beyond that, shouldn't we care about the entire ecosystem, ecocentrism? And, it, and in a sense, I'm quite open-minded about that because I think all of those things are important to the sentient being. So I think we can share common cause in yeah. a deep, rich concern for the environment. But I think this prefigures what you might come on to talk about next. What I'm most concerned about is excluding any of the sentient beings. I'm much more worried about that than I am about people extending beyond. And it does seem that the, the current central gravity of the modern environmental movement has done just that. So they've gone from an anthropocentric concern about humans to now we care about the entire ecosystem. Yes, yes I agree. But they've still carved out most of the sentient beings in the wild and in our farms from yes. any consideration whatsoever. And I to, to me, that gives the lie to this ecocentric view for many people it's just a veneer on anthropocentrism because the reason they care about the climate and the environment is because of narrow human concerns we want nature to look pretty we need some ecosystem services we want a comfortable temperature range we want the sea levels at the right point but actually when you ask why 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 it's back to all about us so that's the thing i'm frustrated about is where people say i'm going i'm even more generous than sentientism you know i, I care about everything but actually they've skipped over you know, vast swathes of beings who can actually suffer, and that gets totally disregarded. Yes, um, I completely agree. Oh, it's so frustrating, Jamie. It's just like yes, and and there are there are key climate movements in operation now for whom that is exactly it. It's like we care about people, we care about the ecosystem, and then we'll go home and we'll have a, a chicken dinner. Yeah, I mean, and they're still serving a, they're still serving meat and dairy products at COP twenty seven as we as yeah, we talk. I mean, it's shocking. I mean, it's shocking. It's like and, and, burning yeah. braziers full of coal in the foyer. It's yeah. like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. what's going it's, on? Yeah, it's yeah. it's really, really, it's really, you know, when we talk to when I talked about those three um, areas of trauma, which I call the uh, the suffering, the violence, and then the denialism. That is the denialism yeah. in action, and it's it's, you know. I still find it shocking that some of the most committed, wonderful climate activists I know are still eating meat and and and, and drinking, you know, eating dairy. Yeah. Um, and, and, it's, and it's not so much about, you know, the CO2 or the CH4 
or even the ethical impact of their personal choices, because obviously they're tiny, right? They're still in matter. They're still important. But it's more about an indication of what they think is important. And if, yes. and if an individual isn't willing to make a very simple, straightforward personal change, how can they expect to drive institutional change and policy and subsidy regimes and legislation? And I mean, the, the signal is completely the wrong direction. Yeah, yeah, absolutely right. You're absolutely right. If we can't make this, you know, because we, we were constantly talking about structural change, we need to change the system. We do. This is this is the key. If you can cut meat and dairy out of your diet, that is a structural, that's a systemic change. But if you can't even do that, like you say, how are we going to do the big issues? You know, that is such a simple turn. And, 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 and uh, I mean, yeah, Jamie, there's, there's so much to say, you know, obviously. But yeah, it's, and, and I, I became very obsessed at one stage, I still probably am, about the erasure of animals, how animals yeah. are erased. You know, they're yeah. just, they're erased. Even when they're present, they're erased. You know, when they're there on our plates, they're erased. It's, it's, and yet, you know, the weird, mad thing about the human culture is that we also worship them. So we use the image of the animal yeah. Advertising and soft toys and in our children's cartoons, but we don't ever see what's happening to the real creature. And, and as, as a famous academic, well, for me, a famous, as I think about it a lot, but I, I can't actually remember who wrote it. There's a study called about Peppa Pig, and it was in, yeah. the academic who wrote it was inspired by the fact that she took her daughter to a Peppa Pig show, and in the in interval, all the kids came out and ordered ham sandwich. I was lucky was enough to interview. Uh, Linda Corinbukas. Uh, I can't remember the episode name, but if you look yeah. back through the catalogue, she's I, awesome. But it was it was amazingly insightful because it cut to that the heart of that in, incongruence in, in the way we think in, about non-human animals. Incredible, incredible, and I and I absolutely agree that I don't think we're going to move forward as a functioning society into an incredibly challenged planet unless we 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 address this. And yeah. once I see this addressed, then I will have hope. Yeah, I agree. I'm with you, and um. Uh, and maybe this helps to frame this final question, which we're already talking about, which is how can we make a better future? Because I'd suggest that I don't want to trivialise the technical nature of problems, whether it's climate change, environmental destruction, or animal ethics and animal agriculture. You know, there are challenges to work through. But at the same time, I think we by and large understand what the technical solutions we need are, and quite often they're substantially available. So whether it's you know, various forms of renewable energy, whether it's electrification, um, you know, there's work to do, but it's doable. It's just a question of political will and breaking some social norms and just fucking getting it done, right? And it's, I think it's very similar in the animal agriculture space because I don't deny there's a transition that's required. There are work that's got to happen, but we already have the answer. You know, we have plants and we could half the agricultural land on the planet and double our output at the same time and we could do it sort of starting now so so in both spaces and you might put me right but it seems to be less of a technical or a technology problem or a something where we just really have no idea what the answer is it's more a problem of political will social norms and human psychology that's standing in our way and in a way that makes it doubly frustrating and i think you were reflecting this before when you're talking about denial because that should be the easiest thing to fix. You know, if we needed 100 Nobel scientists to come up with some radical new invention to fix all this stuff, well, fine, that would be frustrating. But it's doubly frustrating that it's actually within our own minds and our own institutions and our own political structures. We just need to decide to do it. But that just is a very, <laughs> is a very loaded 
complicated just. But how, how does that lead you to think about how we can make a better world, given all the different types of things you've seen been involved in or different forms of activism? Do you have an overall view about how we can do this? So, first of all, I've just, I've just got to say, Jamie, yes, you're right. The solutions are all out there. It's a quote that's come out from key people in COP, um, saying there is just what's lacking is the political will. Um, uh, the founder of Animal, well, one of the co-founders of Animal Rebellion, um, Dora Hargitay, interviewed Sir Peter Carter, who's one of the expert reviewers of the IPCC reports. And he said, and this was a couple of months ago, and it's on YouTube, he said, very, very emphatically, when people ask him, what can we do, what can we do? First thing is to go vegan. And, and it's because veganism um, addresses social injustice, it addresses suffering, it addresses, it's, it's the most dynamic act that an individual can take because the governments are not acting and business is not acting. And, you know, you're standing up against multinational corporations when you go vegan, because there's multinational corporations who are driving animal agriculture who don't want to, st to stop eating meat. Um, you're, you're standing up against uh, systems that no longer make any sense on, a, on a, a dying planet. What do we do to change it? So, so, so I've been and, asked... And, on the, and yeah, sorry to sorry, interject. Please, no, no, please do. And, and, even if we put animal ethics to one side, right, and who would do that, right? Who would say animal suffering doesn't matter? Mm -hmm. But even if we put that to one side and we only focus on the climate and the environmental impact, I'm not pretending that going to a just transition to plant agriculture is a silver bullet for the entire climate problem, but it is a silver bullet for the climate problem of agriculture, which is a massive chunk of it, right? So we still need to do yeah. the energy stuff yeah. as well. But yeah. I do actually think when it comes to the agricultural problem, whether that you think that's 15, 20, 30% of the problem, it genuinely is a silver bullet. We just need to choose to fire it. it, it I mean, it, I'm an it, amateur, it, but... Yeah, well, 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 so am I, even though I've, I feel as if I've been reading it. But, but it's even more than that. I mean, I, mean, I, think, I think it was Eileen Christ who said in a podcast, if you, you know, the climate crisis is one issue, but what is, is going to get us is the ecological crisis. So this, this, this sense that we could pull all the carbon out of the atmosphere, all the greenhouse gases out, in the, and we are still living on a blasted planet, okay? There is, the, the soil is dead, the oceans are dying, the water sources are going, and why? Animal agriculture. Animal agriculture is a key driver of deforestation, of, 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 of loss of our wild habitats, of our wild creatures. You know, animal agriculture is the main reason why only 4% of mammals alive today are wild. Yeah, okay. it's mind-blowing. So and it's and mind you look at the Our World in Data stats on land use, and it just punches you in the face, right? It's that obvious. Oh, you look at the, the space for the... Yeah. the farmed animals and yeah. the space to grow the crops that are then fed to the farmed yeah. animals yeah. and nearly all of it is wasted yeah. and turned into i mean i mean i mean the tragic thing jamie before i come to what we can do to address this is you know animal agriculture this is both hopeful and not hopeful will come to an end because it will no longer be feasible to you know as we're going into a hotter and hotter planet where water is a resource who really is going to want to give 150 litres of water a day to one single dairy cow, which yeah. is what they need to operate? It's insane. Okay? You can insane. keep a community going for a week with what you give one dairy cow in a day. Um, and that kind of ridiculous, and, and of course, don't get me started on the incredible suffering of the dairy cow, and the, yeah. you know, which I feel should be enough for us to challenge the whole system anyway. So, so it's going to change, but how much suffering 
are we going to have to endure before it changes? Why can we? Why can we not, as a race, stand up and go? This is insane. I, I still yeah. don't get it. And I, I take some hope there as well because I agree. Again, you know, even if we ignore the animal ethics aspect, yeah. the central catastrophic waste of animal agriculture is just unavoidable. So, water you yeah. mentioned, food yeah. again. Yeah. You know, I think cattle are some of the worst. Right, it's the yeah. feed conversion ratio. You know, input to output, even technically, yeah. is catastrophically wasteful. People yeah. talk about food waste, and um, and it, they just don't understand feed conversion ratios. Um, no, so don't. I agree that yeah. sort of central catastrophic inefficiency, albeit covered yeah. up by subsidies to some degree, ultimately has to drive it to being a you know stranded asset in a in a dying industry. Um, yeah. But then you layer on the environmental concerns and the ethical concerns, and it's yeah. like just go faster, seriously. Yeah. Please, please go faster. Yeah. Um, in terms, so so the what can we do about it? Or what was your? How did you phrase it? How do we make a better future? Yeah, so, and and that's and that's a better future for you know ideally for all sentient beings, yeah. humans and non-humans as well. So yeah, you can go wherever you like on. So it's a question that's asked of me every time, and I have yet to find a satisfying answer. <laughs> um, I went to see Greta Thunberg at. The South Bank Centre, and someone said, "What do we do now?" And I thought, "Here we go, here we go, here's the answer." And she went, "Educate yourself." And and I just thought, "Oh no, no, I want more than that now. Yeah. I really, really need more than that." And but I think it is, and I I was, you know, I started a climate centre because I wanted to meet people where they were, and I thought if I can meet people where they were, maybe I can push them a bit further. You know, maybe if I can talk to the recycler, maybe I can introduce them to other issues about, you know, why we need to degrow, <laughs> you know, why we need to stop creating so much waste in the first place. It's not enough to recycle. Can you push? I, I think it. And then last night I went to an amazing talk by a systems uh, theorist called Naviz Ahmed, um, which I'd like to read you a quote of his in a second. And, and he was asked, something similar and I thought of a systems thinker how is a systems thinker going to answer that question and he said as an individual start as an individual and take yourself to a place where you are working in alignment with your values so so and I was like wow this is a systems thinker talking about what each of us as individuals can do but does it's like in alignment with your values it's about and I'm paraphrasing Nevis and I'm so sorry Dr Nevis if I've got that wrong but it's like if you love animals don't harm them. Um, if it, you know, it, it's 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 living as well as you can with as much thought as you can. Being, how do you communicate this to other people? I, I think still, Jamie, you have to meet them where they were, where they are. There's a very, a very good friend of mine who's a very committed meat eater, and nothing was getting through to him until one day I said, "Animal rights is a social justice issue now." And I could see just a part of him just go, oh, now, I haven't really thought of it like that before. Um, if you're against oppression. Yeah, you should be against this. You know, this is, this is, this is oppression on, on an unbelievable scale. And I think speaking about it as much as you can about, about putting yourself in uncomfortable situations wherever you can about so when I say that, it's like, you know, um, you know, being able to, to push people one step further. I mean, I finally said to a very, very dairy loving friend of mine, 
you know about the mother cows, yeah. You know about the separation, yeah. And she did and still is still drinking milk. But I, I think I may have planted a seed and things will progress. Become an actor. Oh, Jamie, I wish I had an easy answer. It's such hard work talking about it more. Um, leading by example. You know, I went to dinner at a meat eating and some friends of mine who really love meat and, and they put on a vegan feast for me. Um, uh, and that was so kind, you know, and some of them weren't that happy about it, but it was, it was very kind. Um, yeah, just keep going. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Um, and I and, and I like the way you talked about this, that systems thinker acknowledging the value of individual change, because that's yeah. one thing I find frustrating. You know, there are, there are some people who are all about individual change and are naive about systems. It's like, yeah. you don't yeah. understand how the world works. But then there are other people who are like, it's all about the systems. Yeah. So my choices and our choices just don't matter. Don't because matter. Therefore, I can do what I like. System, therefore, I can yeah. do what I like. Well, hey. <laughs> and, and that's one of the, that's a core human competence, right, is finding yeah. excuses not to change, right? So, yes, yeah. I'm, I'm free. So, <laughs> yeah. And that's clearly bullshit, right? And there is – Yeah, bullshit. It's both, in a sense, are true, right, because those institutions and systems are super powerful and drive many of the real impacts in the world. But those institutions comprise individuals and they're driven by individuals and they're influenced by individuals. And and even personal choices have ripples that you never know where they'll stop that influence others and bring ourselves into alignment and nudge the institutions. And at the very least, if you see a system that's causing harm, why would you continue to fund it if you have other yeah. choices, right? You wouldn't yeah. you wouldn't continue to send donations to a terrorist organization. The, the, the two I mean, work, yeah, there's lots of I mean, the two work hand in hand. You know, yeah. action on its own is probably not enough unless it's a hundred percent. Whoa, it's it's but at the scale it is, it's not, not enough to drive change. So you, but I think you need to, like I say, live in alignment with your values. Which with animal agriculture, actually, with eating animals should be really easy. You know, once you see how they suffer and you think I like yeah. them, why would you then put a body part into your mouth? Pretty straightforward. No. <laughs> it seems to me crystal clear, but apparently not. And then. But then also, I, I, you know, sometimes I also say um, when I do talks, you know, encourage the consumer slash citizen slash potential activist to agitate for change. So don't allow the. But then there's another thing, Jamie, is like as we go into as we go deeper for us, deeper into the climate emergency, we need to model new ways of living. Yeah. And one of the new ways of living that we really need to model is not this terrible, inefficient animal agriculture system it's about you know eating in ways that don't harm the planet still further don't waste resources and 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 so so consumer individual action does matter but not on its own it has to work in conjunction so those two yeah. hand in hand yeah Makes sense. Hand in hand. now if you're okay for a little bit longer there are two other sure. angles i wanted to ask you about you touched on you know different forms of activism and putting yourself out there and that's another obviously very live debate uh on all of these topics about you know how disruptive should activism be because on the one hand there's the preachy strident you know sometimes actually directly aggressive even violent activism and at the other extreme there's um an activism that nobody notices right what's uh, the yeah, point yeah, yeah. what's the point of that yeah. right so so how do yeah. we find this balance between maintaining yeah. our ethical clarity and drive yeah. and the yeah. seriousness of the issues we're engaging with but still meeting people where they are and finding something that's effective and brings people in rather than polarizing out. What's your thought about? Yeah. So, so, so it's interesting actually, because you've just reminded me that when I use the word activist, I use the word as someone who is actively engaged in the issues, but I don't mean someone necessarily who is gluing themselves to the road. Yeah. 
So, so, so my, my definition of that's activism... That's one form of activism, yeah. That's one form of activism, but actually activism is, uh, yeah, you're aware and you're ready to take action in ways that you feel are, you know, that you can, that they, whilst also slightly pushing yourself as well. Um, sorry, just remind me of the original question, Jamie, because it was So, quite, I guess, how disruptive yeah. should our activism be oh, okay. to, re right. to respect yeah. the seriousness of the issue, but also to be effective in bringing people along with us and I mean I mean I have to say yeah so I have to say slightly we're being brought into uh uh past instances of activism um well we're talking about JSO potentially just up oil and that whole disruption of the individual now I mm. I'm very very uncomfortable disrupting individuals I think I'm very uncomfortable um and i've been part of extinction rebellion for a while i will happily sit in the street for quite a while i won't get arrested mm. um, because i think i'm older and i'm still a bit scared um but i am uh, i'm saddened to see how the jso activists are treated i know that these are good people jamie don't get me wrong they're really good people and they're very scared a lot yeah. of them are elderly because they don't want their, their grandkids to die in an inferno. Um, and they are working to the science. I can't say that they're actually exaggerating um, at all. Um, so you've got to, and a lot of hatred is being directed at them at the moment. And I'm so sorry for that. Um, but I would not probably glue myself to the road. I yeah. just feel bad about disrupting ordinary people. Yeah. One thing I will say about JSO is they are getting these issues in the headlines and they're taking huge tolls for it. Yeah. A lot of these activists are really not having, you know, don't, don't, you know, don't for a second think that that is fun. Yeah. You know, these are, and, and, and I do think that they will be regarded as, my hope is that their courage will be recognised in the future. When we look back, yeah. Yeah, and, and I have so much respect for them. Um, I, I work in different ways, obviously, with the Climate Centre, with, with, with conversation, with, I do a lot of panel talks. I do street speeches as well for animal rights uh, marches. Um, but they're more preaching, they're more supporting the already converted. I very rarely feel myself giving an animal rights speech to people who are not ready on board. Yeah. Um, so I do what I can, as unrelentingly as I can. But I think the jury's still out on what's going to... Yes, it's really tricky, Jeremy. Yeah, yeah. I, I it's tough, isn't it? Yeah, I, I completely understand their passion. And I have so much respect for them. And the one, th the one thing I'm very clear on is, and this, this sometimes is a problem, is that you might or might not disagree with a particular mode of activism. And my sense is we need a dazzling variety of different yes. approaches that may or may not work. Yes. But, there's a, but the, you might criticise a particular mode of activism, but that doesn't undermine the validity of the cause they're working on. No. So, yeah. so you'll find this in so many places. People will say, well, look, um, you know, just stop oil through something on the glass in front of the Van Gogh. Therefore, I'm going to yeah. become a climate denier. It's like, well, I'm I'm used to that as a vegan on Twitter, right? Because yeah, 
if a vegan annoys someone, yeah. you know, they care less about animals. I'm like, how are those two things related? Oh, anyway, let's not get... Yeah, but everyone's so busy shooting the messenger. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, um, the, it's the, the, I, yeah. I criticise the messenger, therefore that gives me an excuse to yeah. completely ignore their cause. Well, no, they're different yeah. things. But it's convenient to completely ignore yeah. the cause. That's why, I think. Yeah, we love, um, we love excuses. Yeah, yeah, we do. Yeah, we do. Um, I just, I wanted to, did you have another question? Because I really want to read this, um, this quote out from Navizag. Yeah, so the final thing, and it's up yeah. to you whether you want to answer it, was you, you mentioned the idea of degrowth earlier on. Yeah. So I was interested in your view about growth, degrowth, decoupling, you know, how does that debate play out in your mind? But feel free if you want to, because, because again, on that one, it seems as if there are, there's the sort of, if you like, the tech bro answer where, don't worry, technology's got it all covered. We can just carry on and do carbon capture and storage and whatever it else is. And I'm not in that camp. There's the other extreme, which is we need radical degrowth, right? And that might be wind down the economy. It might be take human population down to 3 billion. It might be blah, blah. I'm like, well, I sort of see where your rationale is, but the only way we degrow like that tends yeah. to hurt the poorest and weakest yeah. people around the world. Yeah. And the only way we've depopulated is through war, famine, pestilence, and yeah. Yeah. abject horror. So yeah. I, I'd hope we can find a different path, yeah. right? Well, well, but what's, okay, so what's yeah. your thought about that sort of spectrum about yeah. so, where so we so could I, go forward? Is there a decoupling possible? Is there some way of looking after everybody and still finding a sustainable path? I believe there is. I mm. hold that there. So, so okay. So look at it from. Let's look at it from the fashion group. Degrowth came to me when I was when I as a fashion activist when I suddenly realised that um, there were a lot of um, amazing labels doing incredible things with like, oh, we're going uh, net zero by twenty twenty five. Oh, we've got an amazing biodiversity plan. It's going to be yeah. awesome. And then, and then realizing that all of these plans and declarations were being completely wiped out by the rate of production that they were engaging in. So I can't. It's so it was of, offsetting yeah. a degree of growth, yeah. Yeah. but there was still more harm being done. Yeah. yeah. So none of these companies, or very few of them, were going. Actually, main harm is caused by the fact that the industry creates a hundred billion items of clothing a year, and ninety-nine percent of that is going into landfills, being incinerated. Okay. So. We've got this amazing biodiversity plan, but they're not ever questioning the main yeah. cause of the trouble, the which core. is the production levels. Yeah. Then in fashion, you get this issue where they go, okay, if we could just replace all the bad materials with good materials, that'll be okay. No, it won't be okay. If you replace all the bad cotton with organic cotton, you're still using too much cotton, which then eventually, 99% of which goes into landfill. So then I thought, okay, let's confront this. We need to substantially shrink the fashion industry and now figures have come through. We need to shrink the fashion industry by between 75 and 95 percent. OK, so can you imagine your local high street, your local H&M shrunk by 75 percent? That's what we need to be aiming towards to remain within planetary boundaries. So so that's when I started. I put together a series of a, a, a three, three panels with a group I co-founded called Fashion Act now called Fashion and Degrowth. And I use the word degrowth specifically. I knew that it was an inflammatory term. But I used it anyway because we needed to get this conversation going. Mm. We need to get it conversation, this conversation going through every aspect of the consumption of the global north. What people don't understand about, when people often, people are very frightened about degrowth because they associate growth with prosperity and well-being. Actually, we need, to, there's a missing word there. It's de-economic growth. Yeah, it's de it's 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 just it's it's about a, it's about degrowing a system 
the only places value on the mercantile and mm. the only uh, the only um, value systems in, in terms of pounds and sterling and and it's not about it's not about valuing nature you know it's not about valuing the things that matter or the longevity of the planet or the lives of animals or suffering of people or and 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 the economic growth seems to be largely about treating poor people really badly in order to make a profit mm. okay, there, this is not a social justice system completely um at all <laughs> you know and I, i've seen how garment workers in in the fashion industry are being treated and how they were dumped in the pandemic you know just not paid at all even though they you know they desperately needed to be supported the other thing that people forget about degrowth is one of the theorists behind degrowth jason hickel says who needs degrowth the global north we need to stop shopping so much and we need to stop shopping for things that break in a couple of months or that we chuck into landfill so mm. really and he even in his book which um, less is more he says emerging economies need to be allowed to keep growing to the point where they have stable health and education systems they have resilience to the climate emergency we're now talking about loss and reparations you know it's really degrowth is about the global north just going maybe we don't need to shop as much as we do yeah. that's essentially what degrowth is thank you so i so i i think the aspiration is to as you say sort of degrowth economically in the global north while still allowing human flourishing as opposed yeah. to Hitting well, and flourishing, but but I guess I can so I can understand that from a consumer point of view because I yeah. can imagine still having a very happy life while buying less stuff, yeah. right? And that, and so I can I can see that's a, a possible path. I guess I'm I'm a bit more hesitant about the workers in the value chain because, as you said, they may yeah. well be exploited yeah. and precarious. Yeah. But if the industry drops by eighty yeah. percent, they you know they won't have a job at all. Yeah. So yeah. It, I'm not suggesting we can address that here easily but no nope. <laughs> so, um, so so a couple i mean when you say allow human flourishing i would say actually enable yeah, human flourishing yeah, because that, i think yeah. it becomes more possible to live well and in harmony with nature and in animals and ethically when you're not constantly focused on on yeah. where your next pair of denim jeans is coming from in terms of and and we're slipping into my my fashion talks here but you know i've spoken to um uh, a trade union in uh, uh, India about the idea of degrowth and and uh, and and she said, look, if you could just if the West could stop demanding so much stuff, so that we're not working sixteen-hour days and that we are being paid properly, we then have capacity to you know build up these education systems and 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 start up you know. I we, see what you mean. Yeah, so it's actually taking so, taking some of the intensity out of it to take yeah. it back to a better place, rather so, than just so that then they are enabled to support themselves and build up. Because at the moment, so many of their people, particularly in Bangladesh, where I think eighty percent of their turnover, or I can't remember the exact, is based in fast fashion for global. Do you see what I mean? That's yeah. not a sustainable way yeah. forward into the future, particularly as will happen. As, as happened in, in the COVID pandemic, the Global North suddenly decides it doesn't want that anymore. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a colonial attitude. You just keep making stuff for us until we don't need it, and then we're going to drop you anyway. And cut you off, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so degrowth, frightening term as, as it is, when you, when you dig into this book, Less is More, and all the other theorists, it is about justice. It's about allowing, as this trade unionist said, we just need more space and resources to protect ourselves, particularly yeah. in countries which are on the front line of the climate crisis, yeah. look at Pakistan. Absolutely, and I think if you, if 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 justice and 
enabling human flourishing remain the lodestone for that. I think that, you know, that would hopefully enable us to find a mode of degrowth that, you know, assuages some of the risks I was talking about earlier on, because it can take people in some pretty, pretty dark places. Yeah. And let's just go back to the start of this, enabling human and animal and nature flourishing. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And, and as you said, they work together, right? They should work together. They, they should, should work together. to win, win, win. Yeah. Well, you've been so together. generous for your t- with your time. Thank you. I know you wanted to, it would be great to, if you want to finish off with that quote, and then uh, I can ask how yeah, people can true. follow you, learn more about your work to uh, wrap yeah. up. Well, the quote, I mean, itself will open a lot of <laughs> We can do another hour if you like. Oh, no, yeah. But, so Navi's, Navi's Ahmed wrote this, and I sometimes read this out at speeches. He says, the convergence of events we are witnessing is a symptom of a wider process of global systemic decline. The ultimate hidden driver is a way of living and being premised on the self-maximization through plunder of the other, where the others are different humans, different species, or the planet itself. And so for me, that quote is a really key quote because it brings together all the justice projects, all the justice issues around animals and people and and nature. So I, I love that quote. It makes me sort of sit and think with it. There's another... And just to talk about the beauty of animals, uh, Dr. Stephen Harding, resident ecologist at Schumacher, there's a beautiful video where he talks about, he sees a muntjac and how through the muntjac, the muntjac opens his his vision to all of nature. The the muntjac becomes a portal into this beautiful natural world. Uh, In and of itself, it's beautiful, but it becomes this connection with nature. And and, and he's imagining its perspective. Um, or... no, it's, it's for him. He says, he says yeah. here, he says, he says, through the, the presence of the monk Jack, I could get a sense of the ecology of the whole forest. It suddenly came into focus through the being of the monk Jack. And then that wholeness would spread out and I would get a sense of the ecology of the entire, earth. I sank into myself, into my wider body, the earth herself through the presence of the monk Jack. Um, and this may sound a bit airy fairy, but it's something I definitely feel when I talk about the beauty of animals. I talk mm. about their beauty and their connection to, to almost everything that we should be considering important. Um, uh, yeah, it's these are just quotes that I, I sort of mull over a lot. But but thank you, Jamie, for your work. Apart from anything else, it's just an extraordinary collection of, of interviews that you've done. Thank you. I've been so lucky to have some amazing guests, and it's a, yeah. an honour to add you to the roster. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. What's the best way of people following you, supporting your work, um, reading I'm, or writing? And I'll include links in the show notes, of course. But yeah, I'm active on Twitter until I move to Macedon. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm experimenting else. with it at the moment, actually. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, I've got a website and I'm going to be launching the Empathy Project, uh, which is really trying to look at, you know, there is a movement, Jamie, that we haven't talked about that is trying to centre the animal. I've seen incredible writing, the work of ethicists, of, of lawyers, really going we really need to reframe this and so i want to be reflecting some of their voices please you know as as it'll probably be in the new year before it's launched i'm looking for writers and thinkers as well for that um but on the good on the good news that's already happening i will not be i'll be one of many now yeah so things are happening but yeah 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 change is hard but possible yeah yeah Well, thank Thank you again so much. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Please stay in touch. And thank you for being my guest on Sentientist Conversations. Thank you, Jamie. Cheers, Belle. Thanks for listening. You're helping to normalise rational, compassionate thinking. Don't forget to subscribe, leave us some stars or a review.
You can visit sentientism.info to find out more, and you'd be very welcome in any of our online community groups. The biggest is on Facebook. If you like what we're doing, why not tell your friends about us?